0: If you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 13, we'll be starting in verse 1. The Word of God says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and kings for my, and you will stand before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it, will, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over brother to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for yet another Lord's Day and the opportunity to hear from your word. We ask that through Dan's word this morning you would help us to not be led astray, but rather to help us endure to the end. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
1: So Jesus has arrived at the temple. We've seen that. We looked back at the old prophetic word that the glory of God, as Ezekiel the prophet said, would be taken from the temple would be taken out the east gate of Jerusalem, would be brought to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives, the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus stayed during Passover week. And indeed, just a few days before this text, this morning, Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down at Jerusalem. He walked down off the Mount of Olives through Bethpage, through that east gate, and into the city And then he made his way into the temple. And as we saw from the prophet Ezekiel, indeed the glory of God had returned to the temple. And yet he was not recognized. He was not worshipped. Indeed, he was seen as a threat, a threat to power, a threat to wealth, a a threat to a religion that inflated the self-worth of man from which religious leaders prospered, from which religious leaders had murder in their hearts. And so we've seen over the last several weeks, Jesus in the temple then, in the confrontation of the religious uh, state of of Israel in that day, the confrontation of the religious leaders, and, and this confrontation has grown and it has heightened and so after really several weeks of our sermons, but a couple days in the timeline of Passover, now Jesus leaves the temple. And Jesus leaves and he heads back outside of Jerusalem through that east gate, back up to the Mount of Olives. And there he rests with his disciples. And the disciples are going to make a, just a little comment And in making that comment, it's going to launch Jesus into chapter 13 here, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Really, it is a a farewell discourse from Jesus. And it is, for me, the the most difficult passage in Mark for us to, to wrap our minds around. It's an important passage, but a difficult one. I say it's a farewell discourse. If you were to flip to Mark 16, and we'll get there in in, uh, several weeks from now and look at it, but when you get to Mark 16, you'll see a note in your text, and almost every scripture translation will have it. Does Mark actually end at verse 8, or does it end at verse 20? And there is some debate over that, where it is supposed to end, where did Mark's Writings initially end, is it a postscript? And if it ended at verse 8, especially, we'll see that there is no sort of final word from Jesus Christ. It's the announcement of the resurrection and it ends. And so, either way, as Mark moves quickly through things, he moves sort of the farewell address to this spot here in the Olivet discourse before the final moments and the final events of the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. I say that it's an important and difficult passage because it's one of the primary passages that people will go to to point out the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he prophesied things to come and he did so with such accuracy, surely it speaks to his divinity and it is also the primary text that people go to to show you that Jesus was indeed not divine because he prophesied things that did not come about in such a way that he erred, and so he may be a good teacher and a good uh, prophet, but he is not God. He he made errors here. And it all under all depends on, stands on what do we think Jesus is actually prophesying here in chapter thirteen? So you look, and you heard the passage read for you, but as they sit on the Mount of Olives on that hill overlooking Jerusalem, they look back at the temple, and one of the disciples kind of just innocently, it seems, says, man, look at that building. Something else, isn't it? We've seen the temple is indeed an impressive structure, some 35-plus acres, walls 150 feet high, a a, a beautiful building. It's the third iteration of, of this building. Of the temple built by Herod. One Jewish historian of antiquity says it this way it looked like a snow, from a distance, it looks like a snow clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. That is marble, a mountain of marble and gold. And you see, Jesus' response is somewhat surprising. In verse 2 of our text, Jesus said to them, Do you see? these great buildings, there will not not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus prophesies in this moment to the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically to the temple. He prophesies that this is about to happen. And so they follow up his little prophetic word there as it seems like things move on a little bit and a few of the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, okay, when when are these things going to happen? Look at their question in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite him, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus' answer is where the confusion can begin. All right, let me just go ahead and tell you up front. I'll warn you, it's going to be a little different of a passage. Because we're going to spend two or three weeks in chapter 13. But I want to make a case for you why we're interpreting it the way that we are. And so we'll kind of look at the text a little bit as a whole here. And then we will make some applicational points at the end. It's difficult because the disciples are conflating everything in their question. The disciples still don't understand that Jesus is about ready to lay down his life in just a couple days. They, there, there seems to be this sense among them that Jesus has arrived in this Passover week, his arrival in Jerusalem, that he's getting ready to set up his kingdom now. And so this destruction of Jerusalem, this upheaval, this end of the age, these moments to come, it all is just one big event. And so they think Jesus is about ready to smack down Jerusalem and to set up his kingdom and it, it, it's all getting ready to take place. And so Jesus is going to decipher out and lay out uh, things are going to unfold a little differently. And so they ask for the signs, signs of the time. Don't worry, the roof's not falling. It's just birds or creaking or something. The end times is always a fascination for people. I think people look at the end times, eschatology, and and it just, I don't know, whatever, it captures people's minds a little bit. Especially for the American church, over the last hundred years, the way that they've looked at the end times has really changed And the emphasis is moved to sort of understanding the the last things, the end times, as a timeline. So that you look at Revelation or Daniel and it becomes like this code for for cracking all the events and figuring out how things are going to unfold at the end of time. You know, unfortunately, but undeniably, I think for Americans their eschatology or end time understanding has been shaped by the left behind series. If you're familiar with those books. You guys know those books. They came out when I was in high school. It'll date me a little bit. Well, in college and beyond. But so there's 16 books total written from 1996 to 2007. I read a couple of them and they were good, fascinating. I just didn't keep going with it. But 16 of them written seven of them ended up on the bestsellers list at one point in 1998 1999 the top four books on the new york times bestsellers list were the first four books of the left behind series as of 2022 they sold over 80 million copies this sort of like, let's find an event. Let's see, read apocryphal literature like Revelation or Daniel or end times literature that maybe even Mark suggests at here. And every event, let's try to find its historical marker and let's start connecting them and adding them up and we'll crack the code so that we know exactly when Jesus is going to come back and what it'll look like. and, And they're going at it in that way. And it's made a couple guys really wealthy and sort of shaped the way people look at the end times. But when you look at Mark 13, the admonishment to the reader is not that we construct timetables or decipher signs for the end times, but that we are admonished, 19 times we are admonished to be watchful, to be alert, that we do not know when the end will come, that we are warned not to be led astray by signs or false teachers or false claims of messiahs. No one is commended or encouraged in this text to be some sort of eschatological code breaker. In fact, it seems like that would be a pointless errand in the fact that it tells us in the text that even the son of man himself does not know when the end will come. But the premium all throughout is on faithfulness in the present. Watchfulness, endurance, especially in trials, in adversity, in suffering. The the litany of woes that are listed are not to lure believers into some speculation on the end, but to anchor our watchfulness, our faithfulness to God in the present. So he tells us through here that what it is that you're experiencing, what it is that is about to come, he says, is the beginning of the birth pains. That is, it's not the big event. The child hasn't come, but it's the beginning of the birth pains, and this is what you're going to experience. And these birth pains don't undermine the reality of something beautiful at the end, in fact, they testify that something beautiful is coming at the end, but there will be painful, and the end is not yet. So, with all that said, how then do we understand Mark 13? Well, here's how I would understand it. Again, with all humility, I don't, uh, I don't pretend that I know the deep things of the Lord that nobody else knows. But I do think we can look at some points here and see that in verses 3 through 31, but especially verses 3 through 23, Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He's not speaking of his second coming. He is speaking of the destruction of the temple, something that happens in the first century, in 70 AD. That is what he is speaking to. Now, it gets a little cloudy in 24 through 27. We'll look at that next week. But then there is a clear, I think, transition in verses 32 through 37 then, where he begins then to speak about the return of Christ in the end of the age. Right. So this first passage is not the, the, the very end of all things. It's not his return. It's not the end of the age. He is speaking specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, why look at it this way? What are some clues? The reason, I'll go ahead and tell you, this view is the minority view. I'm certainly not the only person that holds it. But it, it would be the minority view. But here's why I think we should look at it this way. First, just the way the whole text is set up. Reason number one, the connection, the pronouncement of Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in verse 2. So he says, the temple, Jerusalem, these buildings are going to be torn down. They ask him, very plainly then, in verse 4, when will these things be, what you just told us about? And then you'll see, again and again, repeated in the text, these things will take place, these things will take place, these things will take place. He is referring to what he said in verse 2, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. So I think the whole thing is set up in that way as he keeps referring to these things taking place. Secondly, there are geographic and cultural specifics that he gives in the instructions that make sense in light of the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, if you're new with us, whatever. This is a little different than how we typically go to the text, but I want to set this up for us because I do think people head down the wrong path in their end times thinking we want to protect from that there are geographical and cultural specifics for example in verse 14 it says but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains again a geographic cultural reference that makes sense if he is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem Third reason, I think there is a distinct transition in verse 32. He's talking about these things, these things, beginning in verse uh, 3 and 4, all the way through. These things, these things. He concludes his statements on these things in verse 31. And then in verse 32, he transitions, but concerning that day or that hour. He starts using the eschatological language of that day, that hour, that refer to the day of the Lord, refer to the end of time, his return. And, and so he makes a transition. So the whole thing is not about his return. He makes that transition. Matthew and Luke both have parallel passages, and Matthew's passage makes it even clearer. In Matthew 24, verse 3, says, as he sat on Mount Olive, the disciples asked him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, the destruction of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so then he answers them in the same way, very specifically, but separately. All right, number four. In verse 32, of chapter 13, you read, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That day, the final day, is a mystery. And it would not make sense for Jesus to be laying out the signs of what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden say, but nobody knows. He's laying out the signs of what is going to happen for something separate. That is the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. That's what he is telling, be ready for. That's what the signs are pointing to. When we get to verse 32, nobody knows the sign, the time. Then the last two arguments, final two. And don't get nervous, most of the sermon's an introduction. Okay. <clears throat> People start clocking it, like, Good grief, if this is the intro. And this, I think, are the the two strongest arguments. In verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They ask, when are these things going to happen? He starts explaining these things. And then at the end there in verse 30 he says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And this is where people who interpret it as the end times, the second coming, come and say, see, Jesus was wrong. This generation two 2,000 years later and he hasn't come again. That generation is long gone. This generation shall not pass away. To say generation is just figurative, I think, is is not a grammatical possibility. And so he is speaking of something that is fulfilled in the first century, that the generation does not pass away until these things are fulfilled. And finally, number six, if you read Acts, Acts operates as a a fulfillment of this text. Luke, who wrote, again, he also has the Olivet Discourse, and then he writes Acts as well. So you have Luke writing these two. And I think intentionally so. You see Jesus' words, then you look at Acts, and you see all that he is predicting that is going to take place between his death, resurrection, and ascension, and this prediction of the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, all of that is taking place very specifically in the book of Acts. And so Mark, writing here in the 60s to people who are facing all kinds of persecution, wanting to know, okay, Jesus has died, he's gone on. Like, what's taking place here? He would offer them a word of comfort, a word of endurance, and a word of watchfulness. All of these things are taking place just as Jesus said they would. All right. What about verse 10, though? Verse 10. Unfortunately, these two pages have ripped out of my Bible, so I'm struggling keeping them in front of me here. That's how hard this chapter was. I just pulled it right out. (laughs) Verse 10 says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So he's saying, okay, all these things are going to happen, but first the gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations. Some people use this as a missionary text, and I think rightfully so, but again, in its context. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. Matthew and Luke says it this way, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the world. Well, how has that happened by 70 AD? Well, I would suggest that it has, from the lens of the reader, the gospel has gone to all of the Roman Empire, everything around the Mediterranean Sea, the world that they knew, the Rome that had been conquered. The gospel had spread. You think in Luke 2, verse 1, that that familiar Christmas passage. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered to be taxed. That's all the Roman world, the world that they knew. The Roman world around the Mediterranean. In fact, you would see Paul in both Romans and in Colossians speaks of his ministry, that the gospel has gone to the whole world. Through his ministry, the gospel has been preached to the whole world. In Romans 1, that people hear the testimony of the faith of the Romans throughout the entire world. He's not saying, hey, I went to New Zealand and to... He's talking about the world that they knew. And so Acts itself testifies that the gospel went to the whole world before the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. That was most of my sermon. What's a few things then that we want to look at? Verses in chapter 13, 1 through 13. <clears throat> If he is talking specifically for most of this passage about the destruction of Jerusalem, well then he is saying here in these verse 13 verses, what is the experience going to be like after Jesus is gone? For these next 30, 40 years, what is that experience going to be like? And he lays it out for them. Again, Mark's readers in the 60s are the the. the First readers of this in the 60s are reading it. This is their experience. He's laying out for them. And so while I did all that arguing that it is for those people before the destruction of Jerusalem, I would say history repeats itself. And what they experienced after the death and the resurrection... And the ascension of Jesus Christ is what the church has experienced in every single age since. The birth pains of the kingdom being established. It is not the end, but it is the birth pains. They needed that hope. Jesus is gone. Why does it feel like things are falling apart? This is the early birth pains, this is to be expected. Every age since has experienced it. That's one of the reasons we go through church history um, in one of the quarters of our Sunday school. We're now looking at uh, <clears throat> the Middle Ages. Why do that? Why look at the Middle Ages church history? Well, one of the it informs us, we see the church struggling with the same things it's always struggled with. With, with wars and theology and, and devastation and persecution But we see all these signs, and we need to be careful that we don't be led astray by signs, by false teachers, by by false messiahs. So we see this taking place. And so as we look at it, we see it specifically for them before the destruction of Jerusalem, and we see the truth is for the church in every age. So, what are three things that Jesus prophesies? First, he makes a prediction of trouble. There will be trouble. There will be religious imposters, false teachers that arise. We see that in Acts 5, in Acts 8, Acts 13. Judas the Galilean, bar Jesus. You see these false teachers, these false messiahs arising. He says, be careful, be watchful. This is what's going to happen after I am gone. This is what's going to happen to the church. False teachers, imposters will arise. You need to be careful. You need to be on the lookout. Man, if that hasn't been true in every single age, including this age, false teachers that arise. In verses 7 and 8, he tells them there'll, there'll be military conflict, there'll be upheaval. You see it historically in 40 AD. Caligula built this huge statue of himself and placed it in the sacred areas of the temple. The Jewish revolt began and then it reached its height with the zealots in 66 AD, which led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You see this upheaval. You see this violence, the Jewish revolt against Rome. There's not been a time in history where there are not wars and conflicts and upheaval. That was some of the theme that we looked at in Advent. The first advent of Christ, the King coming, and then we await that second advent when finally there'll be wise government, peaceful government, true justice. But until that point, these people experienced it. The church will experience it. Prediction of trouble, prediction of earthquakes and famines. We see Claudius during his reign, who came just shortly after, Jesus. There are three different famines during his reign. In Acts, you see earthquakes taking place. Paul and Silas, as they were released, set free from prison during the earthquake. You have the earthquake of Pompeii in 63 AD. So you see these historical realities of it, but again, because of the curse that nature itself, that the church exists in the midst of storms, in the midst of famine, in the midst of earthquakes, religious imposters, conflicts, war. So he makes a prediction of trouble. But then he also prophesies persecution. That the church would indeed experience persecution. Look at verse 9, it says, Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Man, you see that in Acts taking place again and again. You see it through church history. There will be persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will face Persecution. Again, that can feel real, sort of unrelated to an American experience in the 20th and 21st century. But we know right now there's people experiencing persecution for the name of Christ all over the place. They put out a world watch list. Open Door Ministries does it. it talks about the most persecuted areas, the top country, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sudan, Iran, Afghanistan. People losing their lives for their faith. And I, a couple weeks ago, had dinner with a a family from China. They've lived in the States for a few years now. And just talking about the struggle when they had their third child, they went to, to hiding, well not in hiding, but they had to keep very low key as they worked with the underground church. They just didn't want to bring any more attention on themselves. Eventually, they had to leave the country, how they can minister to the church there. Yet the church is thriving there in a lot of ways. There will be persecution, and he says, you need to endure. Verse 10 says in the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say but say whatever is given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Again we see that promise fulfilled in Acts and we see it throughout the church that God strengthens and gives words to people who stand up for him. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. We talked about this in early church history. One of the hardest things the church was struggling with was people who recanted their faith, but then wanted to return to the church. Do we receive them back? They, they've, people have died because of their recanting of the faith. They've turned names over, and how we see this throughout the church. Indeed, we see it in Acts. So there's a prediction of trouble. There's a prophecy of persecution. But finally, there is a promise of salvation in verse 13. You will be hated for all. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. A call to enduring faith. You know, endurance or perseverance speak of it a couple different ways first of all it's a consequence of saving faith that is all true saving faith endures to the end that the father who saves you will keep you the grace that rescued you will sustain you faithful is he who started a work who will bring it to pass You read Romans 8 and it almost reads like this text. How about famine? How about persecution? How about nakedness? How about sword? No, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The sovereign grace of God gives to your saving faith endurance or perseverance. But the means by which that endurance works out is through promise and through warning. That you heed the warnings. That's why there are 19 different admonitions given to be careful, to watch, to take heed, to be faithful in the present. We don't want to, again, be distracted of trying to read does this earthquake equal this prophecy and, and, and start being led astray by the signs. No, we're told to be watchful now that we're not led astray. That our faith is anchored in his word and something deep in the presence. So God will give us endurance. He who saves us will endure us to the end. But the means by which he will do so is both promise and warning. That you see the warning and you heed them. Or as Philippians would say, putting the two together, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is no effort spared in killing sin and going after God and endurance. But while there is no effort spared, it is all a means of grace. So God, Jesus here, in this farewell Olivet Discourse to his disciples as they want to know When's this temple, when's all this stuff going down? What's it going to look like? Jesus says, here's what you can expect when I'm gone. This temple is going to be torn down. This generation will see it. But before that happens, here's what life is going to look like. You can expect these things. And we see the pattern repeats through every age of the church. And so we heed the same warnings. We hear the same admonition. Endure till the end. Take careful mean. take good care of the means of grace. Hear his promises and lay hold of them. Hear his warnings and heed them. I'll give you just a moment of thoughtfulness on the word of God. Let me pray. And I'll give you a moment of thoughtfulness on the word of God, then we'll respond together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray, <clears throat> even as we spent some time doing different digging than we normally do, Lord, that, one, it would protect us from, Lord, opening you up to being wrong about something. We know that that is not the case. So, Lord, help our misreading of the scripture not to undermine your divinity in any way. Lord, as you promised what life would look like after you were gone, Lord, we see the early church endure that. Lord, that's our existence as well. We still live in an age that has fallen, and there indeed is persecution. There there is hardship around us. Lord, might we endure to the end. Might we be watchful. Might we not be led astray, but cling to your truth.